Hello and welcome back to semester two of Nominal Interest. I'm I'm your host Sam O'Connor, and today I am joined by Matthew Lagomba, Naomi Smith, Kasun, Yes. And if we sound different, that's because we are um, we are switching things up here on Nomint. We have new panelists, new hosts, a new location, and of course, new topics. And obviously, given that it's the start of uh, semester and we've been away for a while, it would be remiss of us not to begin with a recap of what's happened since we last last re- recorded. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of events going on in the United States, so we, we won't be getting into that today, but we but rest assured we will in the future. We're going to be looking closer to home. So, as you probably noticed, there's been a lot of shenanigans going on in Australian politics, mostly relating back to Section 44 <laughs> of the Australian con- Constitution, which has affected uh, several senators. Um, now, uh, Senators Scott Ludlam and uh, Lewis Waters from the Greens have had to resign due to them uh, having New Zealand and Canadian citizenship, respectively. And as, as of yesterday, Senator Matt Cavan- Canada? Canada. Um, was forced to resign from Cabinet because his mum apparently signed him up to be an Italian citizen <laughs> without him him knowing or uh, consenting. Surely you need a signature or something. Well, that's actually going going to go to the high to the high court. And uh, given that none of the of the judges who decided in Seward Hill in 1999 you must have no allegiance to a foreign power. Um, in order to sit in the Australian Parliament, there's there's perhaps some likelihood that it may change, but that that but that relies on constitutional interpretation. And uh, actually, break this is breaking news, but um, BuzzFeed Oz, <laughs> this um, is a good start. This um, well-known um, news source <laughs> apparently has documents showing that Malcolm Roberts may or may not. Um, have a British passport, but that is still like very breaking news. So, because yeah, he's an immigrant himself, isn't he? Yeah, mm. more on, more on this story as it develops. Now, I don't I don't know about you guys, but it seems quite odd that you wouldn't do the due diligence before entering Parliament to find out that you're a dual citizen. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's something that you surely would notice. Like, I imagine these people are quite frequent travellers. Yes. There's got to be some quick check. Like, I know members in my family know they're dual citizens and have, and have never flown. It Shouldn't it, that just be something you'd check if you were a fairly cosmopolitan person? Just, just, just to um, clarify, uh, I'm a dual citizen of Australia and the and the UK. Who else around the table is a dual citizen? Anyone? No. No, I'm sorry, Jack. Um, yeah, so so I mean, after this, I now know that if I ever want to run for parliament, and I won't, I'd, I would have to renounce my British citizenship. Um, but yeah, I've always been aware from a very young age that I'm a British citizen, and have indeed travelled on my British passport. And um, it just makes me a bit surprised that when deciding to run for parliament, neither Mr. Ludlam nor Ms. Waters would think, oh, hang on, my parents are from overseas, or in other cases, born in New Zealand. Maybe I should just check up on this. What's interesting as well is, just like you said, Sam, the lack of checking is something that Malcolm Turnbull really picked on last week when he was uh, 
uh, throwing rocks at the green. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, it and, was, and it turns out at least one member of yeah, the Yeah, so well, well don't throw rocks house. in glass houses. So yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, thank you. And it's funny too, because it's actually really easy to check if you're a dual citizen. So my brother um, actually, uh, ended up being a Syrian dual citizen and he didn't know it. It got him in a bit of trouble trying to come into the US. But all he had to do was call the embassy and it took two minutes. They just typed his name in on a computer and they knew. Do we know um, for countries like Iran where renouncing your citizenship is impossible? That's right. Uh, Sam Dastyari, Dastyari. Yeah. who I assume you're referring to here, he took the he took all the steps possible to mm. announce his, his citizenship. Mm. And given that he was unable to do so, yeah. that was deemed okay because he, by attempting to do everything in his power to renounce his citizenship, that fitted with um, Section 44, Paragraph 1, which I might actually read. Uh, any person who is under any acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience, or adherence to a foreign power, or is a subject or a citizen, or entitled to the rights or privileges of a subject or a citizen of a foreign power, uh, shall be incapable of being chosen or of sitting as a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. Very outdated concept. Yes, yeah. because I believe it's almost half of Australians have at least one foreign-born parent. Or, or foreign-born relatives in their family. I think there's a difference, though, Sam, between having a foreign-born parent and, and carrying a passport bearing a foreign country's name. And whether it's just an act that's symbolic, maybe, uh, I think it does at least prove a point to who is being who is being represented, the Australian public, and for what purpose. True, but what, what I'm making here is that in a country that has a lot of naturalised citizens... Mm dual citizens, people with um, uh, immediate overseas parents or mm. citizenship, does this particular provision of the Constitution, which of course dates back to 1901, mm. is it, as Yaz says, out, outdated in modern cosmopolitan Australia? Personally, I feel like your nationality and citizenship are, are very postmodern concepts as is and don't necessarily always align. Yeah, as you can probably call. Open borders for all men. You, or I'm sure like people who live in dispute, uh, along disputed borders and their citizenship may not align with uh, their declared state or nationality. And I don't think uh, sacrificing your passport precludes you from being an effective member of that nationality. It's also interesting when you compare to, at least in the case of Waters and Ludlam, uh, Canada and New Zealand have yeah. no such provisions. Canada um, has in, in their Charter of Rights and Freedoms that any Canadian citizen is entitled to run for and be elected to Parliament. And in New Zealand, I think you only have to ha be a... You have to reside in the country for three years mm. and be a citizen, citizenship not being a factor mm. here, to be able to run for Parliament. I think the possibility of you being a foreign agent, uh, agent because you carry a Canadian passport, is fairly low. So I, yeah. I do see you know, like, there are members of the commonwealth industry. Um, but yeah, it's quite interesting this though because there is, as I mentioned earlier, a landmark Australian High Court case on this issue, Stuart Hill, um, which which established beyond doubt that this dis disqualifies one from being elected to parliament. Nevertheless, um, it, it is something that has been recommended by par par parliamentary committees and other bodies as something that ought to be reformed. 
Now, of course, doing so would require a referendum, which, as we know from history, are very hard to succeed in this country, mm-hmm. um, requiring both a majority of, of people and a majority of states. Um, I suppose it's a fairly extreme measure, but I'm, I'm just curious, really, as to how many Australians might support such a referendum if it was held. It's more about how many Australians would care. Like, um, True. That's, I really We're not feel all like, politi- political junkies. That's the thing. All. I mean, if, you, if the government really thought that it was the most pressing thing to go for a binding referendum on this as opposed to gay marriage, I don't know how well that, that would set in anything. That's um, why I was trying to say before, renouncing your citizenship and the due diligence behind that is far easier than paying for a, a countrywide referendum. Yeah, not a postal ballot. As well. Oh, yes. Um, well, actually, yes, thanks for that, because that's a very <laughs> nice segue into another topic. Namely, the fact that Malcolm Turnbull's relationship with his party is entering a point that one might say that a crisis is happening within the Liberal Party. Yeah, no, I'd probably say so. And I mean, it's normally a crisis in the Liberal Party when somebody has to evoke Menzies. Um, <laughs> so I feel like it was a little bit of a thing when, um, you know, you could tell, because when Malcolm Turnbull made that speech, he was very, very defensive. And their speech in London that, uh, yes, made heavy mention of the Menzies tradition in the Liberal Party of not being a con- conservative party in any way, shape or form. Which, uh, yeah, is very interesting. And I guess in a way, trying to evoke a little bit of um, the, you know, the new French attitude of centrism, uh, it didn't fly with anyone. Nobody cares about Menzies. Most people's political memories probably passed. <laughs> How did we think about that? Was that a fairly effective thing from Mr. Turnbull? Yeah, it's interesting, really, because it does... I mean, obviously, you mentioned the French example, but the Liberal Party's ideological cousins around the world are certainly not uh, <laughs> moving in a centrist yeah, direction. The Conservative Party in England, <laughs> it's pretty obvious where they stand. Yes, and the, the GOP. Um, but it seems to me, at least, that the government is not just up between a rock and a hard place, but it doesn't really matter what they do from here because it appears that the Labour Party is on track to win the next election comfortably. And so whatever Malcolm Turnbull will have to say now isn't going to matter in the future because he will be on the past heap of uh, history, so to speak. And it'll be the next generation of Liberal MPs left to fight, fight this out. That's why I really think timeline-wise, Abbott taking out Turnbull, yeah. I feel like is... is <laughs> Uh, very unrealistic to expect with the election, well, fairly close yeah. within, well, we're talking a year, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, either late 2018 or early 2019. Yeah. So, timeline-wise, for Abbott to come back, do, do, does anyone remember how long Kevin Rudd was back before? Oh, he was very like a short month time. before oh, was the election. Well, yeah. well, maybe. Maybe. It was, it was possibly the most blatant exercise <laughs> in trying to save one seat. And it worked, though, you know, to be honest. It worked. To, I mean, he did save the furniture. But it was, yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously the difference there is that Kevin Rudd was actually popular. With yeah, the charismatic leader. Well, yeah. What's interesting, I'm interested to hear your guys' opinions about yeah. this, because when we're looking at, at uni, we're very, uh, some of us are very exposed to the young liberal demographic, especially in certain faculties, um, and that may appear to be misaligned with the current perspective of the Liberal Party. Do you think if Abbott and his generation are to hold on and grip its straws that more young people will be steered away from the party? I mean, probably, but when you think about it too, like the two of the Liberals' most influential members that are, you know, relatively young, you've got Michael Sukar and Ned, not going to try and pronounce his last name. They're pretty hardline conservatives too. So it's not as if the younger side of the, you know, um, young Liberals' alumni 
uh, any more of that libertarian sort mm. of... Lib- yeah, you think in terms of Alex Hawke or Josh Fyden... Yeah, they're all mm. fairly conservative. Yeah, I mean, in terms of how that goes. On the, on the other side of the aisle, the Australian Labor Party appears to be under Bill Shorten mm. trying to move towards copying other left-wing movements in mm. the United States and in the United Kingdom. Of course, um, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I must point out here, both actually lost their respective <laughs> yeah, elections. A important. topic that nobody really seems to mention have shown that you can, if not win an election, you can get support from people who might not usually vote if by moving towards an unapologetically left-wing anti-inequality message. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that they almost won. Um, Movements that are normally this far left can come close, but um, maybe with Theresa, especially in Theresa May's case, is it more just a rejection of the conservatism, Theresa May having a crack at pensioners, etc., than the massive strength of Jeremy Corbyn, who really only generated momentum three months before the election? Yeah, and I'd say, like, one of the common things we've brought up with, with regards to Bernie Sanders was that a substantial chunk of Democratic primary voters were willing to vote for anybody not named Hillary Clinton. Exactly. What's interesting is that, like you said, three months before the election, people hated, hated Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn. Exactly. Even Labour Party trying to get rid of him. He was, he was, he, it was impossible to get rid of him. So I feel like it was a, resp- a bit of a response vote. And as bad as it sounds, having a fire in a flat... Um, is quite a symbolic yes, event yeah. um, that had to do with a, a, a demographic that perhaps could have really swung the election. So I feel like the Jeremy Corbyn experience would be a cautionary tale for Bill Shorten. Of course, though, when you see him at Glastonbury yeah. with hundreds of thousands of people chanting his name, that is a very powerful... Yeah, but I don't know how far you want to go with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. But (laughs) if we're looking at Bill Shorten's tax policy that was released just last week, at least part Mm -hmm. of it, as a a card-carrying Labour man, even that... Tax is theft. That was disgusting. And this is coming from a perspective that I feel like a lot of Australians would, would share that Bill Shorten's rhetoric about the income gap is fair and reasoned and backed up with evidence, but a 49% effective tax, top tax rate um, is encroaching on excessive when we don't have the same welfare frameworks that other high-tax nation ha- nations yeah, have. That's a very good thing. And I think that if a, a high tax rate like that can be easily justified if the citizenry are compensated with adequate welfare for a uni... Free university and also, apart from social safety nets, different types of cultural programs that adequately spend public funds. And I feel like um, just cutting the cutting the negative gearing and capital gains discounts whilst hiking up the tax on the imaginary or like faceless rich mm. is a, a desperate grab. Yeah. What do you guys think? I don't know. I don't think he needed to even introduce a new tax yeah. plan. If he just went and scrapped capital gains tax yeah. and negative gearing, I think that'd be enough of a centrist like win. Half, half, yeah. the di- half the discount and then reduce the negative gearing to first homes. Or just get rid of all of it. But that's a, maybe a little bit too well, extreme. In my I, I opinion, think, I think sure. someone at CBA just blew a vein in there. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to face the fact that, this is something I'm real passionate for, we've got to face the fact that negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts distort incentives massively. Yeah. And eventually need to fucking go. 
Um, depending on how, you know, okay, young... Yeah, you're so going to have to slap an ex- explicit tag on this one for iTunes now. <laughs> Whoops, <I'm sorry. laughs> it's going to be explicit. Um, <laughs> depending on how young our population is in the future, but it is something that needs to happen fairly soon. And I feel like that would have been enough to go in and sweep the election. Yeah, I mean, and obviously this is all academic because there's still a, 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 there's at least a year out until the next election and there's Corbyn shows the polls can swing very, very quickly. And of course, it's also interesting to remember that as Matt says, and just to expand on that point, it's very easy to talk about taxing the rich or the millionaires and the billionaires. But if you have to tax middle-class people to pay for your new welfare programs or free university, which in itself raises some issues of inequality and the handouts for people who can afford it, that may change things slightly. Even introducing policies like estate taxes, um, death we, taxes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We got it. We got it. We can't use that word. Because <laughs> no, 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 then all the oldies yeah. get panicked. Yeah, mostly <laughs> was phased out in Australia. Yeah, and around the world. And, and we're thinking about the major works of our generation that deal with inequality. That all point their finger at gains from capital yeah. and the, the accumulation of which has become very easy over the past few years in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, Thomas Piketty being probably the most well-known. Exactly. So things example. like estate taxes and like Yaz was saying, um, approaching the tax problem from that way would have been still Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn-esque but not as populist. Agreed. <laughs> oh. And if you scrap the superannuation concessions too that are very unequal and benefit rich people, mm. those mm-hmm. things would have been fine. But I mean, now he's going... It's, it's at the time too where for so long he's been such a centrist person. To change it up now, oh man, it could fall flat on his on his face. I'm, I'm a little worried. What do you mean by centrist though? Because he's always been the union big week. Yeah, but in terms of like... Uh, when you look at Bill Shorten, he's not a particularly charismatic person. Mm. He never has been. He tries... He, you know, he's been trying to implement the Zingers, etc., etc. But if you ask a normal, you know, person who's not that interested in politics, what Bill Shorten is, I don't think Pinko is the first thing that comes out. Yeah, boring is probably the first thing. Um, just but quickly before we move on, um, as you may have seen in the news, uh, the government has decided to change uh, around the um, the departments dealing with security. So that um, Peter Dutton will now be heading up the Home Affairs Department, which is going to be an an amalgamation of various other areas under one um, roof, which means that uh, Dutton will be in charge of the Australian Federal Police and and ASIO, amongst other organisations. So the right issues here are potential creeping authoritarianism, um, certainly, it's a little bit worrying when somebody like Dutton, a former a former policeman who, shall we say, doesn't come across as the most sympathetic fellow in public, mm-hmm. is in charge of um, power of this magnitude. It certainly raises rule of law issues. That's an entirely different topic. Yeah, and especially too because he's a you know possible replacement for whoever happens to be there by the end of it God in the Liberal it. Party. God forbid. <laughs> But um, yeah, no. I for one welcome Peter Dutton as our new, you know, dictator. Um, he's probably making his way up there, and him having access to Asia information is worrying too. But um, it's interesting that Malcolm Turnbull supported it. Yeah. Uh, moderate Malcolm probably wouldn't have. 
No, but uh, government a few points down the pole, needing a bit of security bump, maybe. We, we definitely see that perspective, Sam, yeah. in the press releases and the speech with the masked SAS yeah. men yeah, in the I background. Yeah, I saw um, on Twitter, people photoshopped stormtroopers. Yeah, I saw so, that. What, like, obviously someone told one of them to put on your gas mask yeah, just yeah. for this press release. It like, reminds me of when Abbott used to do those ones with like 10 Australian flags yeah. behind him. It's an interesting move. Do you think that works? Do you like? I mean, probably. I mean, well, I remember reading in the Economist that when China had one of their first international conferences after the Communist Party took over, they put out a a call in the Red Army for applicants over six foot five to stand behind (laughs) Chairman Mao for his speech. So that type of symbolism goes a long way. They do the same thing on the DMZ in South Korea. The South Koreans specifically have their tallest soldiers (laughs) (laughs) patrol the DMZ so they can tower over their small malnourished Korean counterparts. Looking at at Peter Dutton and the hilariously uh, incompetent... uh, perspective he gives on a lot of issues i find it hard to believe there's some sort of kgb overlord <laughs> yeah so, uh, that's exactly what a kgb is perhaps maybe he's a secret judo assassin and putin's his maybe. uh lock screen but, but the real <laughs> issue here though is it, it seems to be a solution in search for problem yes um, all the intelligent people and security experts who have been either off or on the record in the newspapers about this have suggested that this is really not necessary because Australia already has a decent history when it comes to preventing terrorist attacks, mind place not withstanding, especially compared to the UK, the Home Office, and the US with its Department of Homeland Security, both of whom, albeit while being much more prominent targets, have still suffered terrorist attacks. Of various levels and stripes. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, yeah, which obviously leads um, lends a bit of credence to this idea that it's a political move. What's anyway. interesting is that just to end, we've all experienced it ourselves. Centralization is rarely more efficient. Look at, <laughs> look at stop one. Centralizing, <laughs> centralizing all the student centers into one place in the hope that oh, we can put them all in the same office and cut some corners. If that is a component of even a component of the rationale i feel like it's full and whenever government departments are 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 centralized or combined or anything like that it's a good chance there's going to be a few job job cuts a few efficiency dividends and whatever else the management consultants end up (laughs) recommending anyway (laughs) on that note we shall now move on to our second topic of the day which is looking at the extremely um exciting topic of central banks and bond markets (laughs) yeah try to try to contain yourself there guys um so um for the last decade or so central banks around the world the u.s fed bank of japan um, and, and various other banks, including uh, most prominent the European Central Bank, given, have engaged in quantitative easing programs, which is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, echo um, students, which is essentially printing money, which is then used to buy bonds, which helps, helps to stimulate the economy. Yeah, so it's like the helicopter money idea. So instead of going, as Kevin Rudd did in 07, you know, quick and direct to the households, 
the idea is to just sprinkle it in all the back rooms that nobody can understand and hope that it does something. And for most people, it didn't really, but Shinzo Abe has just hit inflation. That's right. So, Japan has now hit 0.4% inflation. They're on the way up. So, it's all those adult nappies that they've been selling. So. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, yes. Overpopulation. Um, um, Age of population. Yeah, and obviously the... Um, the uh, success of anime as a <laughs> as an export to the probably world. the only two industries but anyway. yeah um so about 13 trillion us dollars is held by well by central banks to run world in bonds including the us federal reserve which held, holds 4.5 trillion and they're gradually starting a program scale of scaling back quantitative easing selling some of the bonds they hold which is potentially going to have some impact Although there are, um, there's a good Financial Times article that we'll put in the uh, show notes here that suggests that this may be a sign that things are returning to normal in the global economy and that we no longer require um, this sort of unusual intervention by central banks. But how the world economy adjusts to is no longer being quite so substantial will be interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because I, I don't know, I'm not a, a proper economist yet, unfortunately, but you look at it, a lot of this growth in these markets has definitely coincided with um, DJ Trump's um, you know presidential role and the fact that people are just anticipating more deregulation and cuts and infrastructure spending, so just mm-hmm. a Keynesian everything. Um, yeah, just on that actually, yeah. um, he's announced, well not announced, but he's been reported um, that he may keep on Janet Yellen as the um, Fed There you go. It's probably gentleman. a good thing, considering... Oh, but he, he doesn't pick... Does mm. he get to pick the head? Oh, no. Mm. I know. That's why. Um, What's interesting, yeah. I think, is when we're looking at this from the Australian perspective, is yes. how the RBA is in a tricky position now because the past few weeks with the dollar mm-hmm. have really been a test for the rhetoric of the RBA. Oh, it's um, 80, 80 cents US? Yeah, to, I just, just hit 80 cents during the week. And I remember last year, the CEO, uh, Westpac's chief economist predicted at this time to have a 65 cent uh, uh, exchange rate with the US dollar. So for the, for, <laughs> the, for the possible effect on the dollar that any possible rate increase will have, um, I feel like perhaps we're coming to a time when that decision to harm exporting industries may be permissible would you guys look it's almost as if people have realized that monetary policy is a blunt instrument and you need fiscal policy as well um that's the thing it's gone on for too long Mm. but everything needs to change um you know as much as they've done a little bit by scaling down interest only loans etc like we were talking about before capital gains discounts etc etc if you got rid of that that would ease off the cooling uh the housing market allow the rba to maybe do some stronger things to get Mm. the dollar down well, if we're looking at, say, a supposed increase in an in, in interest rate differential to at least preserve our existing uh, delta value, when we look at the uh, other countries in the world, do you think that would be a way or uh, that would be a reason why the RBS kind of toned down its, its rhetoric over the past few weeks to preserve um, or at least hold back the rapid rise in the dollar? Yeah. Um, because it's interesting to think that now that mining is perhaps shifting more and more into an export phase and the majority of our, our primary mining industries are trade in US dollars anyway, that there would be less pressure to keep the Australian dollar low through uh, a decreasing an in interest rate differential. So I'm interested to see what the RBA can do because I really feel like now's an opportunity to uh, 
list a list of some change. But Yaz, I feel like isn't isn't sold on the idea of monetary policy. No, <laughs> yeah. no comment. No oh, comment. I keep my mouth shut. Interesting. Interesting. So you feel like the backroom RBA Liverpool is that they're no more? Oh, uh, those actuarial grads? No, look, I, I mean, I've got nothing wrong with the RBA. I really like the RBA, but they just can't do it all themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it's gone on for too long that they have been doing it by themselves. And yep. it's to the point now that it's ineffective no matter what. So would you expect the RBA to act in line with the rest of the world then? Or do you expect a similar perspective with it's the status t- quo? No, because you mentioned... Because the, the dollar has been such a big thing behind their rhetoric. So, no, I can't really predict what they're going to go up to, but it's a real tough one. It's a real tough one, especially considering how um, too laney our economy is. Yeah, interesting um, discussion there. Um, before we move on to our final topic, um, so, yeah, do you think that, since to expand on that a bit, since, obviously, the RBA, given what we know and what Matt was talking, talking about before, is unlikely now to raise interest rates again, at least until, I believe, 2018, possibly early 2019, um, when and if that happens, should we view that as some sort of return to relative economic normality, at least in a, on a global level? Um, no, I'm probably a cynic, but probably not yet still. If you'd like, I don't know, looking structurally, it doesn't. things don't look fantastic yet. We're still in a lot of debt-driven growth. We're still, you know, growing because of the expectations of other things. I don't know. I'd like to see some emerging industries or something. But Matt, what do you reckon? Mm, I, think, I think I'm sitting... Oh, with you there, yes, about how um, debt, debt fuel growth and the problem in credit markets, uh, I feel like is something that has been lingering in the background since the GFC. Something Agreed. people kind of kicked into the closet and were barricading the door to make sure it all stays hidden. Um, especially looking at uh, the debt to GDP ratios of mm-hmm. certain countries. It's, it's interesting in light of what you were saying before, Sam, about... Uh, federal reserves where those reserves may end up having to go yeah. not being yes. chosen to go to so uh, interesting times yeah I certainly um, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to attend the Melbourne Institute's conference last week um, at least Bill Shorten gave a speech about inequality that we touched on earlier now the theme for that was was dealing with an un- uncertain world and some of the policy options therein, and the general mood of of most of the panelists was yeah it was one of concern about debt fueled growth, especially in this country where we have among the highest um, levels of household debt in the world, um, which is obviously seen as quite an issue. That um, since the GFC, we still haven't been able to get anywhere near the um, fiscal uh, glory days of how of the Howell government. Um, and uh, yeah, even though we may have thought that we had moved on from the global financial crisis or the Great Recession or whatever you want to, want to term, whatever term you want to use for it, we do live in an uncertain world, and particularly, obviously, certain political events have um, added to that. But yeah, I mean, I've, I think what the, the main theme here is that we just don't know what, what what's going to happen down this particular track with those factors. Agreed. Now, I might just transition here over to our final topic, which is, uh, hopefully you'll find it 
maybe a tiny bit more interesting than central banks, even though that is itself a pretty sexy topic. <laughs> now, I just want to put this question to you. Call it a hot take, if you will. Are millennials killing music along with ev- along with ev- everything else we are allegedly killing? Yeah, Naomi, what do you reckon? Um, yeah, yeah, we are. We're killing yes. music, guys. Yeah, like, <laughs> so, it's, it's, just, it's just a fact. We're destroying it. Yeah, so to expand on that, uh, artists today are not making nearly the amount of money that they used to from album sales, selling singles, and that sort of thing because of the rise of um, streaming services like, like um, Spotify, uh, Apple Music, Google Play, I think. Yeah, and Deezer. They're the big four, Deezer especially. In Europe. Yes. So what these are, if you happen to not be aware, are streaming services which for uh, you can either use them for free and, and get uh, limited access and ads, or you can pay a monthly fee and get access to the entire library ad-free to download and listen to for as long as you like, whenever you want. And obviously that's a lot cheaper than if you used to buy music through iTunes or if you bought albums or anything like that. I mean, putting putting piracy aside for a second. Now, some people will say that these streaming services are a good idea because it allows artists to make some money from people who are willing to pay a reasonable amount to access their um, their catalogue rather than rather than engaging in piracy and the artist getting nothing out of it. Um, but obviously some artists are not particularly happy. It's why Jay-Z and Co. launched Tidal. Which was a resounding success and the artists really got paid more that time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that people love more than rich celebrities um, telling them about how great their own work is and why you should pay more for it. Yeah. Um, so obviously artists aren't particularly happy with um, Spotify. Taylor Swift for a while did not have her catalog available on Spotify eventually because they didn't pay her enough money and obviously Taylor doesn't have enough money. Right? And she's directed it yeah. to the cause of the people too, not yeah. just her. But then her, her music eventually ended up on, on Spotify anyway. But, but, I, but obviously the implications of this are probably a little bit more interesting because it means that artists now probably have to do tours as a necessity. Mm-hmm. Well, I think money. especially on the lower end of the scale, yes. tours and merchandise are now, I would say, primary. Yeah. Um, just to quote here, uh, an unnamed EDM producer with uh, <laughs> 1 million and 23,000 streams uh, on Spotify for 2016 was paid $5,000, um, which works out to an average stream payout of about uh, 0.004 cents per stream. So when we compare that to Drake, who had 4.7 billion streams in 2016, we can see some people are benefiting a lot more from repeat plays than others. Obviously, the streams need to be taxed. Look, you know, maybe I sound like a bit of an old codger here on this topic, but I mean, the music industry has always had to change. Um, when the concept of recorded media came out, people thought that was the end of the music industry. When CDs came about, that was the end of the industry. When piracy came out and Napster came out, Look, it's an agile industry. People like music. Yeah. It's going to come about. Spotify is good. I'd rather that than piracy. Sure, you can make it a little bit fairer, but fuck it. I think streaming's the way to go. Yeah, we're definitely putting an explicit tag on that. But yes, yes, you raise a very good point there. Is that, and the same thing has been used to talk about 
Netflix, for instance, and our streaming services, and of course, it's raised every time Game of Thrones comes on air, and <laughs> in this country, above all others, is private is that if you give us a relatively affordable and legal way of listening to or watching something, we'll be happy to pay for it. And the success of, of Spotify Premium, amongst others, evidently shows there is a market for this. Exactly. If Game of Thrones came out and joined in with one of the big streaming sites, it'd be fine. But people are going to pirate it because they're not going to pay for HBO Go. Of course, the difference for artists is that they can take their show on the road yeah. and make some money off it. And yeah, of course, merchandise sales. Um, so basically, one question I just want to put to you guys is that a lot of culture, in a sense, relies on what is popular in music and the like. And a lot of that relates back to album sales and airplay and that sort of thing but if people aren't listening to music via buying albums or buying singles or if they're maybe not listening to the radio as much in favour of digital content so what is the 21st century equivalent of like the Billboard Hot 100 or like Top 50 is going to be like do we just look at the number of streams now as a measure of or like, like Drake's 4.7 billion, billion streams as a, as a sign of who's having a cultural moment? It's an interesting one. What are you guys saying? Well, what, what was the... Um, is it Shazam? Shazam, Shazam, yes. Shazam had their time in the sun, right, when they had a Shazam Top 100. What mm-hmm. were the most 100 to Shazam. listened in songs? Yeah. So I feel like Spotify is a natural progression of that type of ranking system. Yeah, but I mean, these ranking systems are eventually become more and more redundant because, you know, the ease of music that Spotify has provided means that people are going to be more fragmented in what they listen to and people's tastes are going to become more specialised, just like how YouTube's disrupted TV. So these sort of rankings and in terms of, like, pop culture influence for one band, you're never going to get the Beatles again. It's never going to happen. What's interesting is how sites like Spotify can guide consumer preference and yes. what type of music they consume. And if we look at Netflix as a perfect example, um, them changing the rating system in order to usher in more of their original content into people's uh, homepage is another interesting way these type of entities can guide consumer preference. Yeah, and, and Spotify certainly tends to... I mean, it's not like they have Spotify-backed artists or anything... But I'm sure we're all, all familiar with Discover Weekly. Mm. And I don't know about you guys, I discover a lot of new music yeah, just through that um, playlist every, every Monday. And some of that are artists who I would never have heard of otherwise. And some of them might turn out to be like small bands or, or uh, performers who I then might go and see live um, just based off of that. And, you know, like perhaps this offers an opportunity for artists to succeed in other ways which leads me on to another question so um obviously now um if you're if you and your friends play in a band or if you like singing and playing a guitar or something you can record yourself and upload it to soundcloud you can you can make a video of your of yourself playing and upload to youtube and Obviously, like Justin Bieber has been was was discovered through that precise way. Many other artists, too numerous to ma- too numerous to name, have also sought to fame through that way of um of getting their name out there. Um. So, I, basically, is that another example of dis disruption for the music? industry yeah but it's like a grassroots level it's good it's good like especially before youtube's monetization has definitely come into some problems now 
But um, YouTube is a good was a good example of being able to remunerate people for doing what they want and not having to you know uh, play to what businesses want. But only recently has the advertising changed now that sponsors have more of a say in what content their ads will get played on. And so this is what I'm worried about with Spotify, etc., is when the corporate interests, you know, inevitably, inevitably are going to get in there and are maybe going to start only wanting to put ads on Drake or Taylor Swift and not maybe more offensive things. And then we start seeing some disruption of culture. Yeah. I hope that it's interesting also because potentially it allows um, artists to... Um, avoid having to go through all the pitfalls involved in getting signed to a label. Like, I'm just thinking in terms of, like, artists who might have traditionally had to join a label before releasing an album. Now, you don't have to do that. You can you can um, just get hyped through those sort of um, websites and then just put out a mixtape or something and, and then go on tour and acquire a fan base without going through the traditional gate, gatekeepers, if, if you like, of music. Yeah, agreed. And if they do then decide to go to the gatekeepers, they're from a, they have a much more favourable bargaining position. Um, a lot of artists these days are getting much better contracts with big uh, record labels because they can show the stats behind their music already. Yeah, and it's also interesting that you also see a reaction to that, if it will, don't that, but like to uh, streaming and mp3 and mp4 format in particular becoming ubiquitous because some people go back to vinyl and that in itself is a big area of music sales now yeah like, that's true yeah just, i mean which just shows that consumer tastes are ever evolving or like revolving back to old um, habits and i suppose another area and and matt t- um, touched on this before he had to leave was um merchandise sales um, that obviously is a big area, and um, certainly the internet has um, allowed for other companies to now start making merch. Um, the one I just wanted to bring this up just because of how almost absurd it sounds. The KFC <laughs> have now launched a street a um, streetwear collection. I'd probably wear KFC I, kicks. I just, I just can't help but wonder if this is going to kick off some sort of trend where like Maccas or I don't know. Punky Jackson, they start bringing out their own streetwear collection, or uh, if Supreme will do a collab with <laughs> you, Supreme McFlurry. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so absurd on the surface of it. Yeah, Naomi, what are you? I reckon? definitely see some good like Macca's varsity jackets. That yeah, golden yeah. arches on the back. Oh yeah. Really no, I, I, look, I don't think there's anything weirder. But, I don't think it makes any difference if you get a KFC jumper or you get a Nike jumper. It's still going to some big, massive corporation that's using the, slaves somehow. Is the KFC jumper something like post-ironic? Oh, yeah. I would wear... I would, sorry for third explicit warning. I would wear the fuck out of a KFC anything. That would be hilarious. Yeah, so you're going to have to get like a blazer or something. Um, yeah, Do it in post. It's just one of those um, examples of like companies finding some other means of making money that you would never really think of on the surface of it. Yeah, it's and a good in, in the case of bands, that that is a big way of making money. Like you see people wearing band t-shirts and trench shirts and stuff everywhere. Podcasts have their own merch, um, all kinds of um, things. We'll now look at that as a way of making money. And which is just another example of how industries are being 
disruptive and made to become more agile, innovative and nimble. Yeah, virtue signaling is really important for millennials and I want to show that I'm into more interesting and unique stuff than the other person. So this is just the same old conspicuous consumption as as people like deciding to put put a, a sprinkle in their in their house or buying a BMW or a Merc. Yeah, I reckon. I think so. Like if you're if you're wearing a jumper from some, you know, really novel podcast that no one's heard of but has a great reputation, you're gonna look pretty smart on Or like it. some band that you love that which has like a, a lot of like indie cred that other people might not be aware of. Yeah, it's a good way to find your little social circles and never leave them. That's interesting. Do you think that because I'm harping on about this, but do you think that like what you were saying before about how um, this decentralization of music and of culture in general, do you think that it um, has contributed to us sort of falling into silos, if, if you like, and not necessarily engaging across particular genres or uh, elements of culture? 100%. And I mean, and that's exactly the problem that we've got to deal with. It's not that we have a lot of ethnics or everybody's doing different jobs. It's because everybody's interests are now allowed to be focused and separate from each other. And I think that's good in a way, but it is bad for that whole, the whole family isn't going to sit around at 5.30 to watch Funniest Home Videos. Yeah, I'm just, it's quite interesting because like in my family at least, everybody's watching different things. And it does, yeah, that whole like romanticised notion of the whole family settling down to watch a TV show together. It's not quite dead, but it's pretty close to falling apart. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I wonder if it has any, obviously if somebody wants to do a thesis on this, I'll happily <laughs> read it. Um, <laughs> about like what that does to the family unit or to friendships or any other forms of relationship really yeah that's another form of disruption mm-hmm. wow disruption is really everywhere <laughs> isn't it it's the <laughs> key of our podcast so much right? agility um, <laughs> well thank you so much for listening in to this um first of a new series of nominal interest um as you can probably tell things are changing a bit so we'll be having episodes on different topics some will be shorter or longer than others so, yeah, we're always trying to innovate on this on this platform as much as any other. So thank you very, very much for listening and thank you to my guest. Yes, cheers. So, yeah. Thank, thank you and we will, we will see you soon.